This is the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Podcast, episode number nine. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. We'll help you on your fly fishing journey with classic stories covering steelhead fishing, fly tying, and much more. How's it going, everyone? Thanks for stopping by the Fly Fishing Show. In today's episode, I'd interview Simon Gosworth from RealProducts.com. Simon covers spay lines in depth, including the best lines for wind, why he loves intermediate Skagit for winter fishing, and how the triple and quadruple density lines are going to be huge this year. We talk about whiskey and midday relaxation, waking patterns for the clama, and a bunch more. It was fun to finally sit down and do this one with Simon. So, without further ado, here's Simon Gosworth. How's it going, Simon? Great, great. Good, good day to you. Good, good day to you too. I, I, uh, I always love to tell a story. I've told uh, a lot of people this because it's kind of how I got started. But uh, I kind of watched some of your videos on the uh, the old, you know, the real videos you put together back in the day, and it kind of got me going. I learned a lot, and and really, you know, without those, I may have not, you know gotten on the water you know kind of as i did with the spay you know the spay rod and all of that stuff so i wanted to you know kind of thank you for that and uh and a lot of the questions i have today here are you know involving spay casting and and, and all of that and steelhead fishing so we're gonna dig into some of those questions if that sounds good to you uh, excellent yeah i'm a big spay fan as you probably know so <laughs> Yeah, okay, I can talk about that over a whiskey any day. Awesome, awesome. So you never, uh, you never get bored of talking about uh, spay fishing or casting or anything. Um, you know, it's a tough question to ask in the middle of show season when I've just had three shows back to back and had about a thousand questions a day. It's it it yeah. does get a little old. Yeah, I hear you. <laughs> um, but ask me a month after show season and uh i'll be all fired up again okay okay well i'll come back here and then pick your brain then but uh <laughs> okay. yeah so uh just yeah getting started i like to kind of get a little bit on your background maybe you can give us a rundown of kind of where you came from how you got into fly fishing and ultimately steelhead fishing and to the point to where you are now working with uh, rio oh okay uh well i'm from england originally i was born in uh southwest england just well actually i was born in kent which is near london but moved to southwest england when i was a, a nipper uh my dad started a fly fishing school when i was eight and so he taught me to fly fish um but also taught me to teach you know he wanted his kind of goal in life i guess like any dad i'm the same i'd love my son to be involved was to have his son working for him so he he taught me on the the casting skills but also the the teaching skills over the the course of time um and so we lived in in this in what's called the West Country in Devon, in England, and uh, ran a fly fishing school down there. Nice, nice. So and then uh, you were fully into that, and then and you came over here eventually and moved permanently into the U.S. That was a number of years ago. Uh, I did actually. Yeah, I moved over uh, at the time. So my dad had retired uh, in the U.K. from the fly fishing school, and I'd taken the school on. And the UK has a pretty short season, uh, mostly March through to the end of a kind of October, something like that. And then in the winter, I would travel down to Argentina and guide in Tierra de Fuego for uh, Sea Run Browns, uh, which was great. I loved that part of the job. Um, got paid well, really enjoyed it, caught some big fish, met some great people. But when I got engaged to my, my current wife, uh, 
she's put a kibosh on it, <laughs> heading to Argentina for four months at a time in the winter. So yep. she told me to get a proper job. Nice. And so I did. Cool. Cool. And that's where you jumped in with, uh, kind of got involved in Rio or you had been working with them a little bit up until that point. Uh, I had uh, Jim Vincent, who started the company, started kind of in 90, really 1990, but with little bits and pieces, stickers and, and log books and things like that, and really didn't get into Leader and Tippet and, until the early 90s and didn't get into making fly lines until 95 or so. Um, but he and I had taught a number of spay casting schools in the mid-90s around the U.S. and uh, a little bit in Canada. Um so I'd worked with him a little bit, and we we, produ- we actually produced probably a 97 or 98. We produced our first spay video. It was a cassette in those days mm. uh, called International Spay Casting, and that was with Leif Stavmer, myself, and Jim. Mm. And so that was uh, when we did uh, our first kind of work together. And he just said, if you ever want a, a real job, a proper job, then uh, give him a call, mm. and there's one at Rio for me. So when I had my ultimatum from my wife, I – I phoned up Jim and he said, come on over, come and work for me. So that was the plan for three years. That was the plan. That's cool. That's cool. Yeah. And I love, you know, hearing the story about your father getting you into fishing. I kind of, my dad was a guide too. And it was one of those things where he kind of was all I knew as well. And I kind of tried to deny it a little bit, you know, at at some points in my life, you know, kind of, you know, almost getting out of it a little bit. But um, did you ever feel that way with, with kind of fly fishing and spay casting that you kind of got tired of it? Or have you always been just full <laughs> no bore? No way. Yeah. Absolutely no way. Gosh, nice. I, I loved it. You know, I mean, I, I, I love being, I still love casting and I love being outside and, and uh, in nature and stuff like that. I mean, mm-hmm. the, even though my job at Rio is way less teaching uh, than I like, it's kind of teaching. My, my, my job is education and you know, I'm a marketing guy for Rio's. And so, I think that marketing is educating people, uh, yeah. and so that's why we do these films and uh, and just pieces on on the website about lines and stuff like that. So I'm still teaching, which is what I really like. I don't teach as much as I'd like to, to these days. I still teach a few schools, uh, but it's never got old, and I, I I count myself extraordinarily fortunate that I, I'm still here in the fly fishing world, and I'm. Oh, yeah, I'm a I'm a bum. I yep. left school at 16 to, with no qualifications to work with my dad um, at his school, and he wanted that, and I wanted that, and the alternative was more school, yep. which uh, I wasn't such a fan of. So fishing was. That's cool. No, it's good to hear. That's interesting to hear about the, you know, the marketing side because you do a little bit of that. I mean, from with Rio, your I mean, your title is officially the brand manager, or maybe you can yes, yeah, yes, officially brand manager, which sort of encompasses bits and pieces. You know, it's the marketing side and kind of making sure we have right products and product testing. Uh, well, product testing is the best part of my job, that's for sure. You know, mm-hmm. going down to Louisiana and catching thirty pound reds just to test some lines—that's pretty cool. <laughs> or the Bahamas. That part's cool. <laughs> so nice. that, that's what's good about the brand managers. You kind of get that that uh, multiple roles, which does keep it fresh. Yeah, for sure. So I was, you know, I talk, I've done a number of these interviews now, and and when we talk about the spay lines and things, it seems like, you know, the wind cutter is definitely comes up in all the interviews. Do you think you could maybe give us a little uh, quick little history on the wind cutter, how that came to be and got us to where we're at now with all these specialized spay lines. 
Yeah, the, I mean, the wind cutter was definitely the first spay line that was actually designed as a line for spay casting rather than the traditional double taper, which everybody used in those days. Um, it really was in 95 when Jim was uh, producing these and, and, and churning them out. Well, actually, Cortland was making them for Jim in the early days to his designs. And what a lot of people don't know, the wind cutter used to have a three-number designation, and it confused a lot of people, um, and it confused me <laughs> you know, at the beginning. I, I'm not surprised it confused a lot of people because you buy a, an 11-weight or a 10-weight salmon spay rod, you want a line that says a 10-weight or 11-weight, not one that says 9, 10, 11, or yeah. 10, 11, 12. And so I know a lot of people were confused with that, uh, but how the wind cutter was was developed in a very simple way without trying to get confused yeah. or, or confuse people, spay casting, uh, because it involves a D-loop, as, as you know, the heaviest part of a fly line for any good spay cast is going to be the rear portion. That's the part that creates a D-loop and loads the rod, and the lightest part should be the front end uh, because that's the part that's dragging in the water and creating stick and drag and stuff like that. So Jim was the first one to really develop a line that was based on this shape and he would take a nine weight the front end of a nine weight for example and make that the front piece and then he would take a, another section of a double taper 10 weight and splice that in uh, to give it a bit more mass and then he would take the, uh, the body section of a double taper 11 and splice that in further back and so that line ended up as a, a 9 10 11 um, but the weight distribution was right for spay casting. Weight at the back, lighter front ends, mm -hmm. and a thousand times easier than any double taper of the day. So that's yeah. why it had three numbers. And we always used to say the middle number was the was what it would be. So a 9, 10, 11 would be good on a 10 weight rod. Right. But you could, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And so that kind of gets us there a little bit, you know, back to the history I, in, you know, bringing us full circle today with, you know, a bunch of the different lines we have. I, I just had a question this week from somebody that was asking about a good, you know, you, you hear a lot about these single hand spade rods or micro spades or lots of different things going on now. Is there, is there a good line that's, that you would say is, you know, for steelhead fishing for a single handed rod that would be, you know, a lot, especially a lot of these people that are fishing smaller rivers. Um, is that something you guys have, are working on? Yeah, well, we have obviously, <laughs> excuse me, have a couple of options on that. It all depends. Uh, sadly, fly lines have become really specialized these days, and there isn't um, one line that does everything. I wish there was. Well, I, I guess I don't wish there was because I wouldn't have a job. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, but it would be an awful lot less confusing if there was a single line that did everything. But uh, if you're talking of um, spay casting in particular with a single-handed rod, are you, rather than overhead casting? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, just somebody that wants to loves the spade cast. Maybe there's a bunch of uh, you know thick brush behind them, and they but it's a small river, so they don't feel like a, even maybe a switch rod is a little bit too big. So something you know where they could still. I mean, a switch rod is pretty similar to a single handed rod, but say you had a ten foot eight weight and you wanted yeah. a good line to do some spade casting. There's a, there are a couple of options. I mean, there's there's lines that we design for one handed rods. We have a line called a single handed spay and in touch single handed spay line. And that's exactly what it is. It's designed to spay cast and roll cast with. Okay. Um, that's in a floating version or a intermediate tip, which is a pretty damn sweet line for swinging. Mm -hmm. uh, and that goes up to an eight weight. Um, but, you know, one of the, the best things, an awful lot of people don't realize that there are actually two fly line standards in the industry. There's the Aftima standard, which most people are familiar with. Mm -hmm. 
the eight weight rod you quoted, for example, is part of their AFMA standard. And then there's the AFTA standard. And the AFTA standard was something pulled together, um, I would guess 99, 2000, 2001, maybe something like that, when a bunch of people got together to create this standard for trying to standardize two-handed salmon rods and spay mm-hmm. rods. And most spay rods and, and switch rods are based on the AFTA standard and not the AFTMA standard. Um, so it is confusing because you get a five weight or an eight weight two handed rod and you get a five weight or an eight weight one handed rod and they're not the same beast. They're, no. they're completely different animals in terms of the, the line they take, but they both say five and eight. So it's a bit confusing, Yeah. but I think one of the best rules of thumb is the rule of three. Uh, and I, I tell people that in all my demonstrations in schools and we put it all on the website, just trying to get people to understand that that a spay rod is generally speaking about three lines heavier than the uh, lighter, sorry, than the single-handed yeah. rod. So if you had an eight-weight one-handed rod, like in your example, you could quite easily go about any five-weight spay line, okay. and it will be a pretty accurate load for the eight-weight rod. Perfect. So yeah. you, you can buy the ones that we specifically call and make out for them, but equally, as I said, you can just go and buy a, an off-the-shelf five-weight trout spay type line or a trout switch type line um, or yeah. a, a steelhead line that's kind of in the spay family a skagit or a scandy that says a five weight and it'll be pretty damn sweet on that eight weights uh, steelhead rod nice yeah that that's a perfect uh perfect answer that'll be good i'll look forward to passing uh, that one on um so this is a you know focused right now on this show on steelhead. So I was hoping to get into a little bit of steelhead uh, questions. And you still do uh, plenty of steelhead fishing when you can. <laughs> uh, not plenty. It's not enough. Uh, Never is enough. No, of course, it's not. For anybody. But yeah, I, I'm fortunate. I moved here to the state of Washington about four years ago, four and a bit years ago, 2013, okay. end of, um, from Idaho, where Rio is based. And that was my own choice. I, I I wanted to get out of Idaho, and and my boss at the time said, "Oh, absolutely, you can work from anywhere you like. You just tell us where you want to work, and we'll, we'll happily keep you employed." I thought that's a great idea. So I looked around, and I've always loved Portland, the, the city of and the area, and the Columbia Tribs. So when we just got kind of the go ahead, I looked a little bit more seriously at finding areas that I could live in that would have steelhead close to home, and so Southwest Washington. <laughs> excuse yep. me it's perfect uh so i you know I'm, I'm five minutes from a small steelhead river i can be down at leave the house at 6 30 and i can be back in the office at 8 30 in the morning having had an hour and a half swinging it's perfect nice. Nice. so I, I do that and i do that as much as i can when i'm not on shows and when the river is in, in full flood and all the other things align I, I go down pretty well every morning or evening to do that perfect Perfect. And that's the, uh, is your, the kind of your home river, the one you, the closest is the, the Klamath. Is that the one you fish most often? I, I do fish the Klamath. That's not my local. My local is called the East Fork of the Lewis. Okay. Uh, I don't know if you know that one. It's uh, just a small little river that comes off the foothills of Mount St. Helens and uh-huh. uh, a beautiful personal small river. Um, and one of the reasons I fished that one is that they designated a wild steelhead gene bank about two, three years ago. So there's no hatchery fish. It's all catch and release. Uh, so as a fly fisherman, it becomes a bit more of a, uh, a less busy river because of those regulations, whereas the Kalama and Cowlitz and stuff, oh, yeah. rivers that are close by are a lot heavier fished. Sure. Lots of more hatchery fish in those other rivers. Yep. Yep. Okay. And uh, maybe you, you could explain quickly how you fish um, 
the East Fork, uh, or I guess do you fish all those three rivers in similar for, um, and are you focus mostly on uh, winter steelhead or maybe you can give uh, us a little, yeah. The East Fork is, is, you know, it, again, because of the t- reduction in the hatchery fish, it doesn't have huge runs. Um, the, the primary run is January, February, March. That's, that's the time to fish it. And therefore it's Skagit lines with, T8, T11, or like today, I'm looking out the window, it's 55 degrees, the water's 1,400 CFS. It's still a bit high, but, uh, you know, the water temperature's 44 degrees when I was down the other day, so I can swing down the little intermediate Scandi with a Type 3 tip on. It's perfect. Mm. Um, much more pleasant to cast. But then the Kalama, you mentioned that one, that's a, uh, that's just a gem of a river for waking muddlers in the summer for mm. summer runs. Uh, so it's it, pretty spoilt with that. Um, cool. There's a few summer runs on the Kalama, which is pretty sweet. Yeah, that is cool. And what line are you using for uh, for waking up um, on the Kalama? Oh, I just use a little light Scandi. I take my four-weight trats, um switch rod down or hmm. steelhead switch rod and fish away a four-weight Scandi on that and just skate muddlers in those clear little runs and slots. Nice. Yeah, nice. pretty damn sweet. <laughs> pretty like, summer. Sounds like fun. Nice. Well, uh, another river you're not uh, far away from, um, you know, for summers is the Deschutes River. And ah, yes. on that river, you know, one of the things is uh, it seems like about 50% of the time it's it's windy. And uh, that can be kind of raise havoc for a lot of people trying to, you know, cast out a long line. Do you have a recommendation for a good line uh, in the wind? Yeah. Uh, and, and the Deschutes is probably, well, it's certainly the river I fish the most of in this area. Uh, I, I would come over every year from Idaho to fish it and camp out and, and either stay in mop in there or just camp down and mm-hmm. uh, and fish it. So I, I fish that a lot, and I do love that river. Uh, I think that's a fantastic fishery. And it is a very strange fishery because you have the summer runs there. They're not big fish. You know, they're five to seven, eight pounds. You know, I mean, maybe 10 pounds if you're lucky, but the average fish are small, which tends to result in smaller, lighter outfits but it's a huge river requiring very big casts and it's windy. So it's one of those, it doesn't really all align. There isn't the perfect setup for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but <clears throat> excuse me. And I, I fish the low lights, the early mornings and the evenings, and there's tends to be less wind in those times That's of the right. day. Uh, I always fish little, again, I still fish my little four weight trout spay, uh, my little Sage one switcher on that. But for the average fish sizes being that, that small, fish a little four-weight Scandi Versatip on that, really, and usually an intermediate tip that mm-hmm. just swings a little bit below the surface. And most of the time, that will do the job uh, in most conditions, but I'll always yeah. have a Skagit line with me in my pocket to, to change onto the head if the wind does get up. And yeah. just to have a shorter lump of weight that'll crash through the wind helps. Okay, so you'll still break out the Skagit if it gets really nasty and you got to punch it out there. That's a, Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I'll do that. And I'll, But then what I'll do is I'll usually put on the 10-foot what we call replacement tips rather than the Mo tips or the T14 type tips um, okay. that are traditional on Skagit's because they are the replacement tips have tapered. So they do land a little softer and uh, and not so scary, especially early in the morning Yep, when okay. fish are close in. Gotcha. So you mostly fish, uh, hit it early and late, and then uh, use the afternoon to enjoy the sunshine? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah. I'll still fish in the sunshine and usually go down to a – an intermediate based uh, line there and, and swing a couple of feet down and catch a few fish there. But, you know, most of the time I, it's just nice. I'll, if I'm done with some buddies, we'll go yep. cast or we're just going to hike up some canyons and look around or just exactly. sit in the, in the tent and just drink some whiskey and yep. snooze. <laughs> 
that's what that's kind of the style we've always done too. It's funny I had uh, Tom Lar- uh, Larimer on, and he's, <laughs> yeah. he's going to be on in a few episodes. Uh, it's not out yet, but uh, he really broke down how he hits it hard in the in the uh, you know the daytime and and that and and it was it was great. You know, a lot of good tips there, but but again, there's nothing that you know beats that just kicking back in the sunshine and you know having a beer and relaxing, <laughs> taking a break from a little bit of fishing for sure. Well, you know, I think anglers get to that point in their, their angling life. Uh, I've certainly got to that point where I'm not going out to catch fish. Yeah. I, I certainly wouldn't be a steelhead angler if that was the reason. I'm going out because I absolutely adore being out there, and I love the casting, and I love the whole thing about it. And so I, I don't need to kill myself, so I'm very happy to fish the, the prime hours and then in between just relax and chat with some mates. Mm-hmm. For sure. We were talking a little bit earlier. You're mentioning uh, testing gear. Uh, can you uh, briefly explain the process when you guys have some new, some new lines? How how they get tested and eventually when they get into your um, your product selection? Uh, yeah, you know, we obviously we get uh, dozens of requests for lines. Um, we we go on lots of fishing trips, which is awesome. <laughs> uh, one of the great great things about the Rio team that I work with is that whether it's our sales manager or our R&D guy or our ops guy or or whoever it is, is that everybody's an absolutely mad, passionate fly fisher. And so we mm-hmm. we naturally fish as much as we possibly can just because we love doing that. And so we bump into about anglers and go to new fisheries and uh, all of those get input about products. Some people say you need to change this. Some people tell us, oh, look, you're, you're coming down to fish Paku. You need to do this mm-hmm. is the kind of line you need for Paku. Um, so we get basically we get input um, either from what we do when we're fishing or from consumers or from fly shops or some of our ambassadors. Um, but let's say we've got a product idea uh, that we decide to go to market with. Um, there's certain staple characteristics in fly lines for in the simplest way, a short front taper is going to kind of turn over a big fly and a long front taper is going to present it, a line softly. So you, you start with, what are you trying to do in the fly line? What is what is the fly line trying to do? Um, is it a distance line? Is it a line that's going to be um, throwing into a wind or a big fly? And is it, you know all these kind of parameters, and that kind of gives you an outline of the the basic shape of the fly line. Um, it gives you an outline of the of the size. If you're fishing four to six weight rods, it gives you an outline of the size. So you kind of have these outlines of. Uh, if you like the template of a fly line yeah and then we'll make up that fly line and we'll make it on usually we'll make them on a different series of cores the cores are very very different performance from cores uh so, you know you can have mono cores or braided cores or low stretch cores or uh, a numerous selection of cores that create very different results in a fly line so we'll usually make a a couple of tapers up and we'll make them on three or four cores and take them out fishing and dial in the core that is the best one performing for those conditions in that fishery and then we'll obviously we'll try a few different tapers out and kind of tweak the tapers maybe go back a second time and after tweaking some tapers um dial in the colors in the same way we go down to the flats and we'll fish them on the flats and see if it spooks fish or down in the river see if you can targeting a rising fish can you not see your fly line to be accurate on your cast or whatever those things are um so there's it's just lots and lots of testing out that we do until we get to a point where um, we think we've got it right. And then maybe we've got two, two samples of a line that are, that we think are pretty damn cool and, and right for these fisheries. Then we'll 
send them out to our ambassadors um, and our our pros, if you like. We have a t- we have a very a vast range of product testers uh, as well as ambassadors that live all over the place. You know, we have a couple of lodges in Amazon that are hardcore product testers. Wow. They test our tropical fly lines in the heat, regardless of whether they're bonefish or or whatever. They can test them in the heat and. Yeah. You know, we have anglers over in, in Czech Republic who grayling fish all the time. And so we got a whole network of product testers we've built up over the time that, that kind of get to fish these these uh, last samples and uh, give us their feedback. Yeah. Sometimes they give us feedback, which is great. We need to change something. And sometimes they give us feedback, say we don't need to change anything. Uh, but uh, that's how it goes. And then, then it gets... Uh, put on the short list as, as, as a product. So like for right for now, you know, I was speaking to you early February right now, we've dialed in our entire 2019 product. So we've already got 2019 product in. We've been fishing it hard all last year uh, and all through the fall. We've put a lot of hours onto these lines. You know, the, the, the development side was two years ago. The, the testing side for us was last year and through the fall and winter and <coughs> everything's dialed in. And so that's about the timeline it takes us to evolve a fly line. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then uh, that's that's definitely quite a process. So you go through the full and, – and the new product lines that you're coming through are just – I mean, you're constantly every year just trying to make make it a little bit better, trying to tweak it. I, I was thinking back to a, um, an interview I had um, – Oh, I had uh, uh, Jim Teeny on talking about some of his, you know, his lines are a little bit, you know, set up differently for more of the single-handed rods. But, uh, yeah. you know, he noted that, you know, he thought, you know, the one line they made back whenever they started that line in the 80s was just pretty much great. He loved it and they haven't really changed it, uh, you know, since. Is that is that a kind of a different way that you guys look at doing things where you're always trying to tweak it or is it just, just providing more products for um, consumers? Well, you know, there's a lot of depends. Uh, we have lines. I mean, for example, we came up with a line called the Rio Grande in 2001, and that's still a line we sell. Uh, and we haven't changed the tapers and we haven't changed the weight. We've updated the colors and stuff like that because um, anglers are starting to accept and look for different, more than one single color line. Like the original Rio Grande was just a green, and now it's uh, – a green and a yellow in in in, uh, in in our standard, and then we came out with the low stretch core version of that line in addition to the regular line about three years ago, um, and so those were technology advancements that made us create alternative options of that line and make it a better fly line, but the original line is still there and it's not something we're ever likely to drop because it's a it's a great line. Yep, uh, it sells a lot, and we always you know our R and D team play around it's it's unbelievable how many ways you can tweak a fly line to make it do something different mm-hmm. you it's i'm learning the guitar and learning music yeah, cool. at the moment and i've been doing that for a couple of years and it's incredulous to me how you can take your basically your eight notes um and create a billion outputs uh, <laughs> out there i know there's sharps and flats and all that as well but you're basically eight octave notes and fly lines are the same is you can take a real grand and you can change the front taper by one foot and squish a bit of weight further back and suddenly get a different performing line mm-hmm. so we'll do that we'll within our r&d we'll do that and if it makes negligible difference we won't do anything if it makes a slight difference that feels better we'll make a running change and not announce it just 
just update the taper to make you know to allow for the fact that we've got it slightly better um mm-hmm. and so really that's that's the thing and then there's always always ideas there's always a new fisheries open up you know the jungle fisheries have opened yeah. up i mentioned those earlier um they're opening up more and more people going down to amazon and bolivia and places like that to fish for peacock bass and dorado and yeah. you need lines formulated cast in tropical conditions with freshwater coatings and big flies and and so there's always seems to be places opening up and fisheries opening up that require products. Mm-hmm. No, it's, yeah, there's a lot of, I mean, there's a lot going on there for sure. I guess that's the, the bottom line is just providing, uh, you know, you've got customers that, that want the best products and you guys are out there to, to serve them. So that's great. Well, we try. Uh, and as it's, uh, we don't always get it right. I know there's, there's products. Nobody's ever going to make a product that is right for everybody in every situation. And, yeah. um, but we try, we are, are genuinely, think we have as good a product as we can make and as good a topic subject for that particular species or fly that the cow is casting. Uh, Mm -hmm. But always open to hear. Otherwise, if people don't agree with that, always listening to input to see what we change. How do you guys deal with, uh, God, I was thinking, I was listening to, I think it was, I think it was uh, one of the big rod companies. They were talking about how, they had a defect in one of their, you know, back in the day in one of their rods and it just resulted in like, you know, a bunch of rods just blew up on people. Yeah. Have you guys ever had to deal with that where something oh, happened in the God, manufacturing yeah. and you had to kind of come back and uh, how do you, you know, deal with that <coughs> issue? Yeah. you got frustrating things. I mean, that that's a down, I don't get downside, but I guess that's one of the frustrations of manufacturing is that we obviously get, um, materials in from various companies and uh sometimes the materials don't get up to our standard and we have to throw them out and sometimes we don't find that out until we've run some products and uh uh suddenly people start complaining about product snapping or coating coming off or something like that we found out the formulation has changed we've had that a few times uh and then it's annoying um we had that with one of our cores once, one of our core mm-hmm. materials. We, we suddenly had a bad batch of those. And as soon as we found that out, we withdrew every fly line off the off mm-hmm. the shelf and threw them all out. It, yep. was, uh, it was terrible. Um, we were out of that product for nearly two months before we could wow. make up supplies with a new product again. But it happens. It's part mm-hmm. of manufacturing. And it's as much as you put in quality control checks to try and stop that, that just seems to be part of manufacturing. This stuff just has gremlins. Yeah. Yeah, no, I hear you. That's uh, yeah. I guess that's the the important thing there is that you know how you deal with it when it happens um, is important. Well, we've definitely covered quite a bit here in uh, talking about different uh, you know lines. Is there you know thinking about you know spay casting? Do you have any? You know, I know you've done a ton of videos. You guys have a, a good resource now where you're sending emails out with tips and things like that for people. Do you have any you know kind of some big tips you would send somebody that's kind of getting started into spay casting to, to help them get going or any resources? We, well, yes and no, <laughs> there's always more that we can be doing. And again, this goes back to my, my love of teaching. I think that, um, you, you know, we've got that modern spay casting DVD, which a lot of people seem to have watched and that came out in 2005. So that's 13 years old and yeah. it's still got a lot of good information, but, uh, but it's, it's not a high res disc and, People are saying, oh, you should update this thing. And uh, internally, we battle with that because there's an awful lot of time put aside to edit that. And also, how many people buy DVDs these days when you can stream pretty well everything on YouTube and stuff like that? 
So that's why we came up with this how-to series that you're alluding to. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just a series. And we pick a topic. Uh, we did 12 episodes in season one, which finished in November last year. And we filmed another 18 episodes for this coming year. So we've, we've got a selection of these how-to. And the one that just came out yesterday um, was how to undo the twist in the fly line, mm-hmm. for example. So there's subjects like that. The one which I'm just working on the edits now, which comes out next month, um, which may well be out depending obviously when this goes live, is how to make a spay cast with a trout rod. So, cool. so there are those things that we we try and put out, and they're they're free films. We we have a little newsletter people subscribe to, and it comes out every Tuesday. The newsletter grows out, and once a month, one of those newsletters is the new how to video. Mm-hmm. So people who don't get this and are interested, you can sign up there on the on the real website, and you'll get that. Um, but other than that, really, there is not much else. You can look at the real Vimeo channel and the YouTube mm-hmm. channel or on the real website. All the videos are stored on, on all three locations there. So lot, lots of ways of finding that information. Yeah, perfect, perfect. Yeah, and I had... And uh, more to come. Oh, yeah, yeah. So you guys are going to be doing that series for, you said, like another, again, about a, how many episodes total? Well, we filmed, last August, I went out back to Idaho and Montana and Wyoming, and we, we filmed uh, 18 episodes so that that takes us through till about February 2019 in terms of, of how-tos. Uh, so this summer we'll be filming um, either we're going to do a, a bunch of the spay episodes, the two-handed spay episodes, or we'll do some saltwater stuff, how to rig for saltwater, how to fish for bonefish, how to fish for tarpon. Not quite sure on that one yet, but that's the next um, season three will be either spay or saltwater, I believe. Oh, okay, cool. Cool. Yeah. And I was just going to note that on, uh, in our, I interviewed Pete Humphreys in, uh, episode, oh, yeah. uh, yeah, episode number seven. So if anybody wanted to get, I'm not going to dig into a ton on, uh, spay casting tips because he, he did a good job and he actually noted that, uh, a lot of the stuff he talks about comes from your teachings, you know, the, you know, all the, we even talked about, uh, you know, the, the white mouse and, uh, you know, sir, <laughs> a guy, uh, Englishman, uh, slurp and soup and all that stuff. So it was great, but, uh, I, He's I a good man. He is. I love him to death. It was great. It was a really great interview. I hadn't really uh, chatted with him before. And it was, uh, it was good to talk there and he, he really broke down, um, you know, the whole process really well. So, um, I'm not going to dig in fully there, but I'll have a couple other more questions for you. I did want to talk a little bit more about um, just thinking about your job, you mentioned that it sounds like one of the funnest parts of your job is actually getting out there and testing the gear and stuff like that. What, if you had to say the hardest part of your job, what what would you say that is? Oh, um, what is the hardest part? <laughs> or is it all just perfect? No, no, gosh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't be looking forward to retirement so much if yeah. I, it was all perfect. <laughs> um, I, I don't like mundane stuff, you know. I'm not a I'm not a um, a marketing person and tra- trained up in any way. And so yep. I don't understand a lot of the, the modern stuff that uh, is requirements for marketing and um, corporate stuff. Uh, right. I, I find all that behind the scenes stuff. I'm, I'm sure it's necessary, but it's, it's pretty mundane. I mean, yeah. gosh, I, I don't, uh, I, I also, I don't particularly like office work. I'm, I'm not supposed to be sitting in an office. That's mm-hmm. not my nature no. to be sitting in an office writing, emails and reports and formulating ads and verbiage for the back of a fly line box and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But it's necessary. Again, that's, that's part of the education. What you write 
that goes on the back of a fly line box is what the customer reads to decide on the fly line. So yep. if you just say this is a pink fly line that catches trout, it's it's you know, it might appeal to a few people, but educating by saying this line's a whole line size heavy and it's got a short head, so it's great for beginners, it's good for fast action rods, that's a much better way of describing that fly line so people buy the right fly line. So mm-hmm. education seems to fall through most of my work, and I do like that part. Yeah, cool. So as far as um, thinking of the, you know, the lines again, we were talking about developing a line, do you, you know, for going to summer steelhead uh, and thinking about a sinking line for summer steelhead, do you have one that um, you guys either have out there or do you have some lines you're developing or something you would recommend? To, to um, yeah. yeah, the um, single hand rod are you talking about mostly? Um, actually, no, I mean, uh, two handed or a switch or switch. The Scandi for me does everything. I, I like the Scandi lines um, just because they're long tapers in summertime. You don't need depth and you don't need big flies. Uh, the rivers I fish, like the Kalama, where I do the, some, most of my stomach steelheading, it's a small river. doesn't require a lot of line out. Though um, I do like casting the longer belly lines. And so when I get to bigger rivers like the Deschutes, I'll probably fish a short head spay or a mid head spay, something that's a little bit longer in 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 head length so there's less line to strip in mm. i think that's a a very viable um thing to bear in mind when you're fishing and uh salmon fishing in scotland particularly it's almost always on the very long long belly type fly lines where you fish far more efficiently because you are not wasting time at the end of the swing stripping it in and trying to manhandle 30 feet of running line right so it, where I can, I will fish longer headlines for that, and we 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 have those. We're not working on any new profiles or anything like that. But uh, again, on small rivers where you're just like the Kalamara, I'm making a 28 foot cast, hmm. 28 foot line outside the rod or something like that. So there's very little line out. You just can't do a long belly line in those situations. Yeah. Okay, and uh, kind of switching uh, the track a little bit here as far as people that. You know, you've worked, I mean, you've definitely worked with a ton of people start, you know, throughout your, you know, your career here. Are there a few, maybe a mentor or two that helped you get along? I know you mentioned from the beginning that, uh, um, you know, you got started with your, your dad. Um, he was a pretty big mentor for you. And were there others? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I've learned an awful lot from an awful lot of people. And uh, gosh, there's dozens. My dad, of course, was by far my biggest influence, as, as most fathers should be. Yeah. Um, and he taught me most of the stuff. But when I was 16, we were, we went to a, uh, what's called a Gymkhana in the UK, which is kind of a field sporting, outside sporting field event in, the, in, in just kind of some fields, uh, horse riding and dogs handling and shooting and fishing. That's a, that kind of thing. Um, country sports. For, okay. And I, I competed in the casting competition there and I, 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 I won the, um, I won it, and um, <laughs> the prize was a bottle of whiskey, which <laughs> nice. I wasn't allowed at 16, uh. so my dad took that. But um, <laughs> the guy who was running that event, he, he was a his son was a tournament caster, so he his name was Howard, and Howard persuaded me that he said, oh, this guy's a good caster, he should take up tournament casting. Huh. So he was a mentor. Uh, Guido Vink, who's a Belgian, he was one of the competitors who competed in all the world championships, and he took me under his wing and uh-huh. got me into – Developed my tournament casting skills. 
but he, again, you see, my dad, he was a before he was into fly fishing, he was a a, a teacher at maths and phys of oh, maths yeah. and physics, and so he understood um, <laughs> physics and and mathematics and stuff, and, and so he would he dove into a lot more detail than was available in those days and how rods loaded and how casting strokes worked, and so he really really was my biggest mentor by wow. by a long way yeah. uh and he these other guys got me into worlds that i'd never been into before uh eye openers um but then once we saw them my dad would come with me and he'd start watching casters and go look at this and what's going on here and he would analyze it and so a lot of it still always boils back to him mm-hmm. of course um and over here there's oh i couldn't tell you how many mentors there are there's a there's a there's, there's so many people i learn stuff from mm. Yeah, um, I love watching casters cast, looking at different styles, mm-hmm. and uh, just seeing what I what I see. Yeah, yeah, that's that's probably the best thing is just get out and go fishing and get out with other people and yeah, yeah. watch them watch them fish and cast. Um, you, you mentioned you know you've definitely fished quite a bit um, for Atlantic salmon. Do you do you see a big difference between you know when you think of Atlantic salmon versus steelhead or you know summer steelhead fishing? Um, when you when you say summer steelhead, there's not a huge amount of difference, um, and you could also equate winter steelheading with uh, spring early spring fishing, for example, on the oh. River Spey in Scotland. Yeah. Spey opens February the 11th, so you can fish February the 12th, and uh, you have grew floating down the river. Grew is just basically frozen ice lumps just floating down the river. <laughs> Um, so it can be cold, and that's going to be the same as winter steelhead fishing. It's going to be fast sinking T14, heavy weighted flies. So, but generally, most most salmon fishing, productive fly fishing for salmon is going to be April to October, uh, so summertime, and that's pretty significant because it relates to the size of the fly uh, in the summertime. Salmon take smaller fly patterns as mm. summer steelhead mm-hmm. takes smaller fly patterns. They, the fly needs to ride shallow in the water column, so they're lighter in weight for both species, which means the lines that you fish are more presentation orientated than the punching fist that thrusts out a big six inch lead headed intruder or something. Uh, so similar, similar gears, a lot more long belly lines, as I alluded to a little earlier on in, in the UK, although. Even that's changing. A lot of people fish Scandinavians' heads now because it's so easy. They're so much easier to cast. Um, so I wouldn't say there's a huge amount of difference. Probably the biggest difference really is the fly size. Yeah. Uh, you, people are gobsmacked when I open my Atlantic salmon fly box and show them some of the salmon flies you fish for salmon. Yeah. Whether you go to Iceland or Scotland in the summer, I mean, you, you're fishing tube flies that are a quarter of an inch long or a size 16 single-dressed yeah. wow. salmon fly, size 14. I mean, you're fishing tiny yeah, flies. Yeah, that's crazy. You never fish really for steelhead. Huh. And uh, they catch fish. Yeah. Is that – can you clarify the – over there, is it still the double hook uh, type of fly? Is that still used commonly? It it depends where you go. Uh, there's Unfortunately, a lot, a lot of people still fish treble hooks. Oh, wow. Um yeah, there's there's a there is a campaign that um, to get rid of treble hooks, which, uh, which I, I've signed up for and mm-hmm. kind of uh, petitioned people on that for, in the UK for some time now to try and get off the treble hooks. Double hooks are still very popular. Um, people are still great believers in that the more hook points, the more fish they land. So 
it's a it's a tough battle to get over. Yeah. Um, double hooks ride really well as well. They they, oh, they yeah. sit really well in the water. Yeah. Um, so yeah, a lot of people fish double hooks. Yep. Yep. Okay. More so than single hooks for sure. Oh no, kidding. Okay. Uh, and looking at uh, you know getting to the switch rods, do you know other than just size of river? Is there any other reason why you just look in the difference between using a two-handed rod versus a switch rod? Would you have a recommendation for when to use those, or is that pretty much at the size of the river? Yeah, mostly the size of the river, um, coupled with are you fishing constantly fishing tight to obstructions because the uh, you know the shorter the rod is, the less distance the rod tip will go behind you and the deluk stroke. So when you're really tight to obstructions, even on a big river, if you're hopping down in a bank and you're one foot away from the, the main bank itself, you'll get a better cast with a short rod mm-hmm. than you will with a long rod. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a really good rule of thumb that um, in spade casting, which is you gain or lose about 10 foot of distance per one foot of rod length. So if you have an 11 foot eight weight and a 14 foot eight weight, you're probably going to get about a 30 foot longer cast with that 14 foot with a similar setup and similar casting Mm -hmm. stroke. So on big rivers, it makes all the sense in the world to have those bigger rods. But on small rivers, when you don't need the distance, those uh, rods are a lot lighter. They're more pleasant to cast, a better balance. And above all, they're much better fish fighting tools. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. How about a uh, thinking of you know stories, good old fishing stories? Do you have any uh, any you'd like to share with everybody that uh, either a steelhead story or just something in general about something that's you know happened <laughs> over the years? Um, yeah, there's always there's a few that uh, stick in my mind. I mean, you know, everybody's got stories. I can tell you about the Frenchman, or I can tell you about the crocodile. I can tell you about <laughs> the croc, uh, the Atlanta guy. Um, you know, there's there's numerous stories. Um, just one that always brings out a laugh. We, to me, in fact, my kids constantly ask me to tell a story. Um, it, it was guiding in Argentina. Oh, late nineties. Um, at a lodge called Cautapen. And we had some clients come down and, uh, there's myself and, and Ian, who's a Scottish guide and, uh, Max Russian guide and a couple of Canadian and American guides and, a um, another couple of Argentinian guides. So there's a bunch of us guiding down there. And the three of us, it was, our, it was our first year. And I think it was the second, maybe third week of the season. And we'd got to know the river a little bit by that stage. So, you know, we hadn't got to know it really well. Um, and uh, when you get to know a river, you obviously know the places to cross and wade over, the, the safe lake, the wading places. And you get to know where the, tricky walking is like soggy mud and and angle twisting rocks and stuff like that anyway one of the guides took out uh mentioning no names to protect the guilty here uh could be me maybe it's somebody else um one of the guides took out these two clients and one of these clients was uh, an extraordinarily large man from atlanta and um they took a shortcut across the river uh bank and unfortunately got stuck in the mud And this guy sunk up to his thighs in this mud. Jeez. And nobody, the guy radioed um, the guys next to him, which happened to me. I came in to help him out. And we could not get this guy out of the sticky mud. <laughs> and he was furious. This guy was just it's hollering sense. and hooting away as you, you know, as I probably would. Yeah. Somebody take me the wrong path. 
And in the end, we had to back up a pickup truck no way. and throw a rope out to him and get him to tie it around and hold his arms, and we had to tow him out of the mud. Oh, my goodness. And um, he obviously was absolutely livid. And he was, he was a lawyer, so I don't know oh, if anything happened after that. But it was... <laughs> A uh, hoot at the afterwards, not at the time. Oh yeah, afterwards. Wow, and you just dragged but, dragged it right through the mud and just pulled him dragged out. him through the mud. There's no way to get him out. That's yeah. that is hilarious. That it was kind of bringing back a uh, gosh. It reminds me of uh, we were we were stuck in a rapid once. It was a bizarre thing in, in a raft in a, like a class four, and it in a suckle for about about five or ten minutes. Wow. Yeah, it was this bizarre thing, but it was just in this perfect uh, uh, hydraulic, and we couldn't get out. But a jet sled came up the river and and had a rope, and they threw us a rope. And all it took was a little bit of a tug to pull us out. It was a crazy moment, but (laughs) kind of a similar thing. A jet sled pulled us out, and you guys pulled the big big guy out of the – I guess all you need is a little bit of uh, mechanical advantage. Yeah, just need a rope. Yeah, a rope, rope and duct exactly. tape, right? Isn't that the things you're supposed to keep with you? Yep, I'll go with duct. I'll go with duct tape every time <laughs> for sure. Um, what about uh, talking about flies? Do you have a couple of maybe good patterns you like to use either for one of those little small size fourteens or something bigger for steelhead? Um, yeah, I, you know the Deschutes. Um, I've everybody has favorite flies. So on those those summer on steelhead, uh, I'm a I'm a huge fan of the patterns that john and amy hazel tie they, they have uh, john as a steelhead coachman which hands down is my best uh summer steelhead catching fly nice and uh just love that and amy actually has a, a fly called the engagement which mm-hmm. is just this gorgeous mottledy green sparkly body mm-hmm. uh, and i fish those two almost without change on the Deschutes, um, one on the point, one on the dropper. Nice. And obviously if you fish only two flies, you're going to catch all your fish on those two flies. But boy, is it hard to take those off because they get so many fish. I hear you. So those are great flies uh, for the summer runs. Uh, Muddlers, obviously, as I said, for the calamity for skating and uh, places like that. Mm -hmm. Intruders and that type of uh, pick your pockets and hobos. The usual suspects for winter fishing for me. Yeah. Okay. Seem to work pretty well here. Perfect, perfect. And as far as I know, you probably uh, don't maybe have an answer for this, but if you had to grab one spay line to go out there and you know for winter steelhead fishing, is there one that you would you would recommend to? And you know, there's difference. You know, as far as weights and things like that, how many how many tips do you think would be good to get started with? I don't think you need that many. You know, when you say winter steelheading, you're obviously talking about getting down. Um, I, I, I fish almost exclusively two tips for most of my winter fishing. That's all. I have a 10-foot uh, T11 tip um, for getting really down. And uh, then I have a 5 and 5 IMO tip that is uh, just five foot of sinking for just kind of the top of the runs, the slightly shallower runs, and there's maybe the tailouts where it slows down. And really, those are the only tips, the only two tips that I need uh, and, and then I, I do most of my winter fishing with, um, I don't, I always ha- I have the entire Mo set up in my pocket mm-hmm. and I'm set up, but I always find I can cover pretty well every depth off those, but I do fish the intermediate base Skagit lines more than the floating ones because I just like the way they, they just swing slower. Uh, and I think there's no doubt they swing deeper because they're an intermediate base Skagit line. Um, but they they get out of the hydraulics of the water system, the top of the water column, and they just give you a slower, deeper presentation. Which, when you're winter steelheading in true winter conditions, 
is everything about catching fish is those slow deep ones and not many people fish intermediate skagits i mean i, I see uh yeah pretty well every line company makes them uh but I, any river i'm on i'm watching people casting and almost everybody these days fishes a skagit style line in winter fishing yeah but most of them fish floating lines and uh I guess we we need to do more education because I think people are missing out when out fishing those intermediate type skagits. Mm-hmm. Cool. And what about as far as we talked a lot about uh, different products and things like that? Is there anything you know we've we've come you know it's super specialized now with lots of different lines and you guys have another bunch of line or you know some new stuff coming out. What do you see down the line as far as you know the next ten to twenty years? Do you do you, do you see any big changes or? new things to come you know i don't know uh it depends a lot of it depends on chemistry it's uh it's very hard to create more radical and different performing line shapes these days uh pretty well every taper is out there you can tweak them and improve them slightly but where the real changes come in are technology changes when somebody finds I, I don't know, a, a new plastic or a new core or uh, something. So I don't know where that's going to be. In 20 years' time, I'm hoping that we, we have all evolved beyond uh, the, the chemistry that we use now. Um, you know, our biggest change was five years ago when we, we developed this low-stretch connect core. Hmm. And now probably 90% of our freshwater lines are built on this because it is so far ahead of the game to a regular stretchy core that uh, I wouldn't have seen that 10 years ago. I would have said, oh, I don't know where it's going to change. I would have said, hopefully there's a technology change. But uh, again, so who knows? What, what, what is, it? is there another core material out there that can produce stronger lines, thinner lines, lines that don't break, don't like, crack, or what? I, I don't know what it is. I don't think it's going to be in design as much as, yeah. as in chemistry. Um, I will say that the uh, multiple density heads is the current fad, if you like, um, where if you take, for example, a, a let's just say, for example, you have a sink tip line, a floating line with a type six sinking mm-hmm. section on the end. When you're casting, and in fact, even when you're fishing, when you're casting and the line is unrolling and the energy is going down the floating section, when it hits that junction between the floating section and the type six section, if you do nothing about it, there's a, a terrible hinging point right there because there's a massive density change. Mm-hmm. So generally speaking, in the past, we have built up the float floating section fatter near that sinking section to allow a, a smoother transition of energy. But that affects the performance of the line and you know you don't really want to increase the lumpy section of the line for, uh, or add lumps to the line. It stops the kicking of the line, but it creates other issues. So what's, what we've been working on and what a lot of companies are working on these days that you're starting to see more and more of are triple density and quadruple density heads. So that if you are making, for example, a floating line with a type 6 sink tip, if your floating line bleeds into a, an intermediate and that intermediate bleeds into a type 4 and that intermediate type 4 bleeds into a type 6, you have a far smoother transition of energy for both the loops and just the way it swings through the water. So I, I, th- I don't know where it's going to go beyond that. Right now we're developing an awful lot of lines for 2019 that are going to have these triple and quadruple densities uh, because they 
are so much better casting. They're not really a technology. Well, it is a technology change. It's it was a system that our R and D guys found to be able to create four different densities on the same piece of core, rather than make four fly lines, weld them together to create uh, four different densities. You can just create one seamless fly line with no joins and multiple densities all in a, in a row, which mm-hmm. is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's fantastic for performance. Right. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Do you have a few? Um, we're getting uh, getting down there, uh, Simon, to uh, wrapping this thing up. But I wanted to check in with you to see if you had another uh, good, either a steelhead tip or a spade casting tip that could, you know, leave uh, folks off uh, to get started with. Uh, you know, if they get out fishing, anything you want to <laughs> want to note something to something to keep them thinking in the car as they're on their jog here, whatever they're doing. Well, yeah, there's a billion. We only have a minute. Gosh, yeah. what are you trying to do, Dave? Yeah, give me uh, <laughs> this I, is the lightning what, round. I, I've come to believe in, uh, in the last couple of years, I've come to see, um, uh, and I don't know if a lot of people will truly appreciate the comment uh, yet or quite understand what, or maybe not be able to do do it, but I think that if you if you are a disciple of casting, and it can be overhead casting, or spade casting, it can be a switch rod or a two-handed rod or a one-handed rod. There is no doubt that the better the cast you are, the more up the rod you move. Uh, So what I mean by that is if I'm holding a nine-foot rod in my hand making a cast, my hand controls the very tip ring of the rod. That's all it controls. Mm -hmm. That's what I'm trying to control. A beginner is waving around the, the cork handle. You know, they hold the cork handle. They're moving yep. the cork handle. And as people get better casters, yeah. they they start to feel how to control further and further up the rod. And so it's a strange tip, and it may not make any sense, but I, I've, mm-hmm. I've seen this so much in the last couple of years of teaching that if you can get to the point where you can control, and it's very hard with a two-handed rod because you have a fulcrum from your bottom hand. Mm-hmm. If you can get to the point where you control the very tip ring of the rod and make that tip ring move as you want to, that is very cool. <laughs> that is masterclass level of casting, I think. That's awesome. <laughs> nice. I don't know if that makes sense, but it's it's I, I'm 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 at that point where I believe that now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. No, I think uh I think maybe uh, I might have to rewind that again and uh, listen to it over. But uh, <laughs> no, it's uh, definitely it's it's good. It's a a great uh, a great tip. Um, so I guess anything you want to mention? We talked a lot about uh, Rio, some of the products. Anything uh, coming out? I know you mentioned there's new stuff. You probably can't uh, let go of too much here. But anything you want to note in the next six months or stuff that you have coming up? Uh, we're at that funny cycle time where, to me, everything that's new to consumers now beginning of february is old to me you know we put it to bed by well april the first every year everything has to be done and and sealed so april last year we put to bed every design and um color and whatever of all the lines that are coming out this spring february march april so it is an interesting one because a lot of people have not seen and haven't you know, they haven't had a fishing season yet that uh, is utilizing some of our new products for 2018. Uh, but they're not new to me because, as I said, we've, we've gone through that yeah. process. So the stuff we're working on for 2019, there's nothing. I can't say anything about those. Obviously, that's uh, 
that's this might be spies listening <laughs> right. um, but the 2018 stuff there's 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 not a lot for this year that's really new um because again there's it's hard to develop major products a lot of people have heard about our direct core flats pro and that's our biggest story for this year and of course saltwater season is well underway so a lot of people are utilizing that and use that but if i had to pull out a single gem out of our 2018 products it would be the three density single-handed yep. spay line yep it is um that's fhi the floating hover intermediate so you have that triple density i was talking about earlier and how that fishes it's that single-handed spay line so it casts beautifully mm. but it fishes so perfectly it swings uh, if you're fishing soft tackles or small streamers or even medium-sized streamers, I don't think there's a better line than that. And, and that's that's new for us this year. It's uh, obviously going to be out in shops in kind of February, March, April as the spring season comes around. But that's what I would be looking out for if you're a one-handed, particularly interested in spay casting. Yeah, cool. That's great. And there's also going to be, uh, we can expect to find you maybe at a spay clave or two coming up here. Yeah, I'll be certainly at the uh, – well, in this country, I will be certainly at the Sandy Cleave mm-hmm. in May. Um, looks like I'll be at Red Shed over in September, and I'll probably be at the Ashland one, the Rogue Gathering in September. Uh, well, then that's probably enough for me. I'm yep. going to go fishing. <laughs> nice, nice. Awesome. Sounds great. All right, Simon. Well, uh, I wanted to check with to see if I, you know, we kind of covered a lot here. If I missed anything or anything you want to note about, uh, you know, whether what you have going or Rio or anything else today. Oh my gosh, I don't know. <laughs> I, I didn't take notes, so I no. <laughs> just babbled away. So nothing off the top of my head. Yeah, no, you did. You did awesome. We uh, covered a bunch of topics here. I think this is going to be perfect. Um, so uh, I guess the last thing I'll leave it with is uh, where people can find you. Where's a good place if they have questions or want to connect with you? Oh, the easiest place I would say is just contact me at Rio. Uh, that's that's the place that I'm checking emails all the time. And that's just my last name, Gorsworth, sgorsworth at rioproducts.com. People can shoot me an email at that. And, uh, uh, you know, happy to always answer questions and to steer people towards the right products and right lines if they've got any questions or product ideas. Um Feel free. I'm always available trying to trying to get get information out there. Perfect. Get people on the right path. Perfect. And if they want to connect with, uh, yeah, like you said, they can sign up for the newsletter and get those videos, the training videos that you guys have out there. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for reminding about that. Yeah. yeah that's uh, You can just go to the Rio Products homepage and there's a button at the bottom that says sign up for newsletter. And uh, once a month, there'll be the new product, the, the new film, how-to films and once a month there's a product giveaway question and yeah it's just information if people don't like it they can unsubscribe it's yep. perfect all right simon well that's all i have for you i want to want to thank you again for everything you've done uh, i mean definitely like i mentioned you you helped me get started on a lot of this and uh you know you mentioned teaching and, and all the you know the, your history there so i think you're doing a good job i hope you keep it up and you know we'll look forward to seeing what you uh, have upcoming in the next few years well, me too. I want to know where it's taking me. All right. So thanks a lot. We'll talk to you soon. All right, Dave. Thanks, man. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. So there you go. If you want to find all the show notes with all the links that we covered in this episode, just go to wetflyswing.com slash show, and you'll see episode number nine on top of the list. If you like the tips in this episode, just go to wetflyswing.com slash free and get the Steelhead Tips PDF Quick Guide, which includes a summary of all the best tips 
to date from all the episodes. If you get a chance, please share this episode so we can help another person get into their first steelhead. Thanks again for stopping by to check out the show today. I'm looking forward to catching up with you soon and hopefully seeing you on the river. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com. And if you found this episode helpful, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. 